0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon and welcome to another Walker webcast. It is my great pleasure to have Adi Ignatius joining me today. Before I dive into an introduction of Adi and then into our conversation, uh, just a couple notes from having been on the road for the better part of the past week. And I was back in Boston for my 25th Harvard Business School reunion. And so it's apropos that I have Adi on with me today to talk about Harvard Business Review and everything that he sees sitting in his seat. But a couple of things from that reunion. Um, First of all, I was flattered by the number of my classmates and other former HBS alums who listened to the Walker webcast on a very consistent basis. So to those of you who came up to me and said how much you enjoy The content we put out, thank you. Glad that so many people find what we do on a weekly basis with Walker webcast to be so insightful and uh, interesting. Um, The second thing is that the content at my 25th reunion Everyone was very pleased that it was focused on happiness and what we do with our lives. And Arthur Brooks gave this fantastic presentation about finding meaning in the back half of our lives. And I said to a number of people that that just means that we're actually now officially old and that they've given up on trying to teach us how to make more money or manage organizations any better at the Harvard Business School and are now saying we need to go figure out how to enjoy our lives, which was quite fun. And the presentations were great. I went from Boston to Chicago for a conference that uh, Sam Zell hosts every year with uh, a number of the most influential commercial real estate executives from around the world. And um, I would just give a couple quick things from that discussion. The first is a reasonably pessimistic tone slash view on the world we live in today, the rising interest rate environment, the high inflation, many people from a commercial real estate standpoint concerned about negative spreads on how do you buy a property at a three and a half cap and finance it at a 475 interest rate and actually make money on it. And at the same time, I think to summarize where the conversation went, it was someone's comment saying, it is a stock pickers market, it is not an ETF market. In other words, you're just not gonna see all boats rising in a rising tide, you're gonna have to be very focused on where you're buying, what you're buying, very similar to the overall capital markets and the equities that people are investing in today. On the overall markets, one of the things that I haven't listened to Chairman Powell's commentary this morning in front of the Senate Banking Committee, but I would say that there are some signs that the 75 basis point increase And if you will, the deceleration in the economy is starting to have some impact. I saw this morning the spot price on WTI crude is down at $103 a barrel. And all of the oil, both refiners as well as um, extractors, were down precipitously this morning. And that led to a, a conversation that I had with David Faber at CNBC yesterday about the fact that the government and many people are focused on the supply of crude oil. And that the real inflationary pressure right now is actually happening in the refined oil market, that the reason that the price of the pump is so high, the reason that plane tickets are so high, is that for every three barrels of WTI crude, you produce two barrels of refined gasoline and one barrel of diesel and jet fuel. And the prices for those three are somewhere around 100 bucks a barrel for WTI crude, 175 a barrel for refined gasoline, and 275 for diesel and jet fuel. And that it's really a lack of refining capacity in the United States today that is causing the massive inflationary pressures for the cost of a trip on an airplane or for filling up your car, and that to some degree, the policy is focused in the wrong place. And until we get more refining capacity online, just as we had happen as it relates to lumber price, lumber prices were were at $1,500 per 1,000 board foot, not because we didn't have enough trees in the United States or there wasn't a bunch of trees sitting around in lumber mills. The issue was we didn't have the milling capacity to do it. And as we got that milling capacity back online after the pandemic, the price of lumber has dropped from $1,500 per thousand board foot down to, last I checked, $550 per thousand board foot. So some of these supply chain problems are not actually the materials not being available, but actually the refining or the milling of them to get them to market. Just a couple thoughts. So let me give a quick introduction to uh, Adi Ignatius, and then we will dive into our discussion. Adi Ignatius is the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review. Prior to the HBR, Adi was deputy managing editor for Time Magazine, where he was responsible for many of its special editions, including the Person of the Year and the Time 100 franchises. He also served as Time's executive editor starting in 2002, responsible for the magazine's business and international coverage. He wrote frequently for the magazine, including cover stories on Google and the 2007 Person of the Year profile on Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Prior to joining Time, Ignatius worked for many years at the Wall Street Journal, serving as the newspaper's bureau chief in Beijing and later in Moscow. Mr. Ignatius received a bachelor's degree in history from Haverford College. His father, Paul Ignatius, served as the United States Secretary of the Navy, and his brother, David, is a former Walker webcast guest and editor and columnist for the Washington Post And a dear friend adi i want to i want to start with your upbringing and how and why two sons of a former secretary of the navy became such fantastic journalists what do you think it was that sparked that interest and amazing capability in you and your brother david
1: so you're you're softening me up so I, i worry about what's to come so there were four of us there were four kids you know our two sisters both got law degrees one is a judge in new hampshire the other actually just finished a stint running uh, the first is my sister, Amy. The second is my sister, Sarah, just finished a stint running in Armenian. We're half Armenian uh, descent, but a kind of scholarly research uh, center outside Boston. So I don't know. I mean, you know, growing, growing up in Washington, my father was part of the Pentagon. We would sit around and talk about issues. We were that kind of family. So it makes sense to me that we would go into professions like journalism and, and the law You know, my big thing was China, though. I fell in love with all things Chinese in college. And really what I wanted to do when I graduated was go to Asia and find a job wherever. And I sent letters to everybody I knew. And one crazy guy who ran a little publication called Petroleum News in Hong Kong, not only was the only guy to respond to my letters, but actually sent me a contract, sign here, you come out to Hong Kong and be my news editor. So that's how it started for me.
0: So let's focus on China for a moment. You edited a book called Prisoner of the State, a book about Zhao Ziyang, the former general secretary of the Communist Party who was sacked after the 1989 Tiananmen Square protest and massacre. I think many of us who don't know China nearly as well as you view that act in Tiananmen Square back in 1989 as sort of the embodiment of Chinese tyranny. Are we missing a broader story by going back to that just one day?
1: Well, I mean, that's not a bad place to start. I mean, you know, Zhao, look, from a a Western perspective or from a a liberal perspective, Zhao was the hero. Zhao was the guy who was, you know, trying to find a solution to this stalemate other than bringing in the tanks and the live ammunition. The extent to which the story was different, I mean, after the students, you know, if you think back, the students occupied the square for a long time. That was a problem in Beijing. would be a problem anywhere. But what do you do about it? You know, the logic of a communist state is you don't compromise, that if you compromise anywhere, all is lost. You know, is that true? I don't know. I mean, history maybe has, has shown that. In, 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 and certainly in 1989, some of the revolutions in uh, you know in the East Bloc show that it's difficult to find that middle ground. But really, by the end of it, it was a power struggle and it was a power struggle in the Politburo. And Zhao was on the liberal side and Li Peng, his counterpart, was on the conservative side. And they were both vying for Deng Xiaoping's ear. Deng at that point had no title, but everybody knew he was the real leader of China. So it was a power struggle that, to my mind, and this is a little bit conspiratorial, required a massacre to resolve. And the day before the troops and tanks came in with live ammunition, things were actually starting to dissipate on the square. Students were starting to go back to their dorms. There were still people coming in from the countryside, but it wasn't a seething hotbed of activity. The government sent troops unarmed, jogging in from the outskirts into the center of the city, which brought all of Beijing out on the streets again, got everybody riled up. And then they came back the next day with live ammunition. So I'm not saying that they they manufactured a massacre, but I think at a certain point, that a violent resolution was required to resolve the power struggle that it, that had happened at the
0: highest levels, and Zhao had been promoting, if you will, liberal or more relaxed response to it. And Deng Xiaoping came in and announced that he would impose martial law. When I when I read that, I was actually surprised that, if you will, martial law really wasn't already in place at that point. That was a significant shift in Deng's policy at that time. You
1: know, they had declared martial law earlier, and it didn't really take. So another lesson is, I mean, the student movement really captured the popular imagination. I mean, this was all of not just the whole world fell in love with the students. And and that was, you know, it was one of the first times CNN was broadcasting sort of live around the clock when they could. So the whole world was seeing this play out. But everybody in, in China, everybody in the cities, it wasn't just Beijing. It was Shanghai. It was, you know, everywhere people, there's this outpouring of support for the demands, modest, really, that the students were making, but just standing up to a government that had never budged on anything. So those moments in Beijing were wonderful. I mean, it was, you know, my wife was pregnant. She was a journalist too. She was marching with the students into Tiananmen Square. And, you know, Chinese would just sort of lock arms around her to sort of protect her body uh, as she was doing this. You know, old women would throw cartons of milk to her and say, tell our story. It was joyous. And I think people who had covered sort of war zones and and protests before had a sense that this was not going to end well. And it didn't end well. Now was that the only possible outcome? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, if Zhao had had prevailed in the in the power struggle, you might possibly have a more liberal China today. But he didn't. And you know, now you have a deal that is a deal, you know, you you can make money in China, but you have to shut up about anything political. And that that's the deal. And I think the fact is most Chinese people would probably say that's a pretty good deal.
0: And on that, Deng Xiaoping is known as the architect of modern China. As you reflect back on the 25 years since you were there and living there, what surprised you the most as it relates to their economic development, either on the upside or the downside?
1: So there were many of us who thought after Tiananmen that the center could not hold. The brutality, the massacre of, of people in and around Tiananmen Square was just, you know, so horrible. And the, ice, the international isolation I and mean, was sort of what Russia is facing today, that it would impose such a penalty on China and that the party couldn't maintain itself. And I was totally wrong. And many of us were totally wrong. I think after a couple of years in the darkness, you know, Deng realized we have a problem and we need to liberalize the economy you know, in a serious way, but try to keep political control. And I guess it surprised me to the extent to which they've been able to do that. I mean, I think scholarship has sort of said, yeah, you do that. You liberalize the economy and there's growth and there's the rise of the middle class. And middle class has certain desires and values that at a certain point, the government can't continue to meet. And when that happens, there will be change either violently or peacefully. But that, you know, no one party state can kind of maneuver that. Well, they have. And really what I was saying before, I think it's important for those of us outside of China to know that people in China are happy with their lot. They're happy with their government. I mean, we look from the outside and we're rightly outraged by what's happening in Xinjiang, by the fact that, you know, there is no free speech, that lawyers who, you know, defend people, innocent people are jailed themselves. I mean, it's terrible. But, you know, the Chinese people are not sitting there seething, hoping their government topples you know they for most people this deal you can get rich you can have economic freedom you keep your mouth shut that's that's an acceptable deal
0: i had dinner on thursday night of last week with one of my hbs classmates a gentleman named will chen and will lives in shanghai and said exactly what you just said he's lived there for 18 years he said it's just part of life we're just used to it i i said you know How are you on communication? He says, I just figure they're looking at it and that's it. And I go about my business and do what I need to do. So that clearly to your perspective from afar, that was exactly what he said as someone who lives in Shanghai. Now on that, he also bemoaned their zero tolerance for COVID and said this whole policy has made life very, very difficult. And in Bloomberg, they just reported that there was a EU Chamber of Commerce survey done last week that said that one in four European companies that is operating in China today is reconsidering whether they want to stay in China due to the zero tolerance policy, as well as a lot of other issues going on in the world. You and the Harvard Business Review have published extensively about globalization and the scale benefits of a global marketplace and global brands and things of that nature. Do you think that we're at a tipping point here, Adi, as it relates to more protectionism and regionalism, if you will, rather than globalization?
1: Possible. I mean, it's, look, it's easy to say you're planning to leave China. It's more difficult to actually leave China. I think what we're seeing is that companies that are there are, are limiting the investment dollars they're putting into sort of growth as opposed to pulling out, you know, yes, there are people pulling out. Yes, there are people trying to diversify their supply chains. China is just a really good partner. You know, I spoke to um, guys at Microsoft who make the HoloLens, who were just saying, if we couldn't do it in China, we could not do it anywhere else. And, you know, maybe that's you know, hyperbolic, but he just said there's no replacement or it would take so long to do that. So I think, you know, China's role in the global supply chain, you know, will not, Sort of end quickly or overnight i hope it won't end i see a lot of problems with china but to me the solution is not a, a kind of a, a full decoupling the COVID stuff though is a new twist and it is just hard to get in and out of the country and uh just huge inefficiencies for foreign companies there is it a tipping point i don't know i mean i i guess i think we may be headed toward a foreign policy where we realize that people who we kind of branded as as not our friends or, or whatever need to be allies where we can find i mean this is my own bias i guess really that i want smart people in the us and china to continue to talk to each other to continue to find ways to work with each other because this world is complicated and nobody's all good everybody's going to offend some sort of fundamental value that you have but that doesn't mean you can sort of decouple from everybody
0: you mentioned that it's a lot easier to talk about pulling out of china than to actually pull out of china Were you surprised at how swiftly Western corporations pulled out of Russia after the invasion of Ukraine?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I don't know if I was surprised, but I've been fascinated watching it. The logic of sanctions is, you know, is sort of airtight and it's brutal. We have a partner, you know, kind of a a licensed partner in Russia, and they're great and their values are sort of free speech and stand up to authority and, you know, everything that you would want to identify with. But it's just not tenable for us to have a business in russia now it's just not and it's partly that because for economic reasons you know their economy is is going to be hit and you know it's hard to do business but but for all the the other reasons that it's just not tenable for my stakeholders for my staff for my team you know for our subscribers to do business now with russia to be sending money you know back to the russian state which in theory is financing what's happening in Ukraine. It's not tenable. So there are a lot of unhappy breakups that we've had to do with partners we love because that is the, the brutal, unnuanced logic of sanctions.
0: I have to say, I, I think back, there are plenty of people listening today who are young enough to not remember this, but when Mikhail Gorbachev came to Washington, D.C. back in 1990 and sort of began the whole process of Western investment in Russia, And you think about 32 years of investment from Western companies into Russia literally evaporated in the course of three months. And it's just, I guess, in the context of that, Adi, what's your thought as it relates to Putin and given the position he's in now and having lost so much foreign investment, He can't unwind that. He can't get McDonald's or Starbucks or any of these other companies that decided to pull back to all of a sudden turn around on 32 years of investment. And obviously, they all didn't go the day that Gorbachev showed up in Washington to meet with President Bush. But my point is just he sort of seems like he's in a corner here where he's lost all the good that he created for this move. And therefore he has to keep forward with the war to win what he wants to win because he really has no other escape hatch. Is that the proper way of looking at it? Or do you think there's some other alternative outcome?
1: So don't know. I think, you know, Putin will insist that there's an outcome that he can describe as victory. I mean, just from what we know about him, you know, he's not going to Suddenly, say, you know what? That was that was ill conceived. I'm sorry to to the mothers of all the Russians. It, it, it's, it's not going to happen. So I don't. So so what does the end game look like? You know, I mean, you you could speculate as easily as as I can. You know, some sort of you know more formal uh, seizure of of parts of eastern Ukraine and and you know that really come under Russian control. And and so you know I could imagine an eventual scenario where war stops. Now that won't be acceptable to probably to, well, it probably won't be sufficient, say, for the West to lift sanctions. So Russia ends up, you know, continues to be in isolation. And so I would watch, you know, what do Russia and China do? I mean, the East has emerged as an alternate market for Russian raw materials as the West has cut them off. You know, Russia and China have this axis of, I don't know what exactly, anti-West or something. You know, I would be careful not to push China into a position where, They feel like the only ally they have is Russia and that that becomes an alliance. That doesn't seem like a a good outcome for the West to push China or to contribute to China being completely out of out of the orbit. But I don't know. I mean, this is this is it doesn't feel like we're anywhere near that endgame. There's a lot of fighting still to happen.
0: And it feels to some degree as if India is the is the one right now who's really helping support Russia, and they're not quite in that same position of being the pariah, I don't want to call China a pariah. They're, they don't have the same political pressures on them between the United States and India, and yet at the same time, they're the ones who seem to have turned their economy onto Russia so dramatically over the last three or four months.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I know that's frustrating to U.S. policymakers. I think it makes sense to, you know, Indian officials in terms of India's self-interests, and that's as far as the conversation goes. And they just haven't been willing to join as a symbolic or, a, you know, a, a moral partner in, the, in standing up to Russia.
0: So I'm assuming that you met Putin when time made him person of the year and went over and when you all were writing on him for person of the year, anything from looking back on those meetings and interviewing the Vladimir Putin that, you know, now in hindsight says, ah, we should have known that this was coming long ago. Well, I mean, the Putin of 2007
1: seems very similar to the Putin of 2022. I mean, he, what really animated him, what he spoke most passionately about and even aggressively to us, even though we were journalists and not representatives of NATO or, or even the U.S. government, was really the, a sense of humiliation, a sense of lost pride, a sense that the West didn't respect Russia that NATO was being strengthened and enlarged to, you know, to hurt Russia, to to hem Russia in, that there were Russian speakers, you know, ethnic Russians who, when the Soviet Union broke up, ended up outside the Russian border, and that these people were being mistreated, and that this was the real human rights violation. I mean, that that doesn't really square with what seems to be happening, but that's the way he talked then, and that's exactly how he talked when he launched his most recent... Uh, incursion into Ukraine to protect Russians who, you know, in his mind were were being, you know, treated badly. That sense of lost pride, you, you just you can't overstate it. I mean, at one point I threw out a softball question to him. I just said, you know, what's a misconception about Russia that you would like to correct? And he really got agitated and was was just talking about how, you know, you people talk about us as if we're primitive, as if we have, mm-hmm. you know, just descended from the trees and have, you know, sand in our beards. And, you know, but it, it was this weirdly colorful, but but clearly, you know, pained expression of, of what it felt to be Putin, former KGB guy, guy who would like to restore the USSR and maybe the Russian Empire, and what it felt like to suddenly be viewed as you know, a kind of a, a lesser state, an unimportant state. That's the battle he was fighting rhetorically in 2007 that he's he's fighting militarily now.
0: You've met a lot of foreign leaders, and there's always the office to be impressed with or intimidated by. But was Putin as a individual, in, if you will, increasingly intimidating, just given his background and his own demeanor? So he was very intense. And we all you know, there was there were
1: several of us who had come in from new york for this interview we we're at his dacha we're sitting with him you know we were with him for three and a half hours and it was just it was intense we we commented later that he didn't we couldn't remember seeing him blink and the only time he laughed was to make fun of a couple of us in you know kind of a, a biting way so and we're you know we were time magazine you know, half of what we do we're trying to be playful you know what's your favorite sport and he just He just wouldn't go there. and It was all very, very intense and all about, you know, this kind of pain and and wounded pride that we were dealing with. And uh, yeah, I remember our our photographer. So we had the great Platon, one of the great portrait photographers of our era, took the cover picture of of Putin and some of the inside stuff. And I remember he was nervous afterwards. He was like, are we going to get arrested? I was like, why would we get arrested? But it was just the kind of intensity just made him wonder whether we were somehow in danger. That was kind of the tone Platon always has this device to try to get his subjects to relax because Putin gave him like five minutes to shoot a right. cover portrait. So, you know, Platon always says, ask people, what's their favorite Beatles song? Because the Beatles are so universal and just it gets people's mind off the photo. And Putin said, of course, yesterday, which just seems just kind of so
0: appropriate. Did you work yeah. that into the article on him? Yeah, did he we did. Started we, uh,
1: the perfect kicker.
0: So I want to stay on Person of the Year for a moment because it reminds me of um, when my mother was asked by Time to go photograph Steve Jobs back in 1982 for Man of the Year. And um, they also sent a crew out to cover Bill Gates. And there was the question of, do we go with software? Do we go with hardware? And time for the first time ever, instead of having a, at that time it was man of the year, went to, and then evolved to person of the year. But at that time they went with machine of the year and they put the personal computer on the cover and had Bill Gates and Steve Jobs as the main protagonists inside the magazine. Time clearly called it right there, Adi, as it relates to not sort of saying Gates was going to be the image of the future or Jobs was going to be the image of the future. As you think back on all the various people and candidates that you looked at for man or woman or person of the year, what did Time miss? What was the one that hit the that hit, hit the editing table, if you will, and hit on the floor and we sh- it should have been person of the year?
1: Well, I mean, the obvious one was 2001. You know, what is person of the year? I mean, it's it's the idea is the person who has affected the news most for good or evil. And in past years, I mean, you know, Times history goes way back. You know, Hitler was person of the year and that never felt comfortable. So they put Hitler, but maybe with an X over his face or something like that, just to make it clear, this is not an endorsement, but this does fit the criteria. So 2001, you know, Osama bin Laden, of course, should have been the person of the year in terms of affecting the news affecting the world for better or worse more than anybody else i don't think we had the i don't know if guts is the right word maybe we had the good sense not to do it or the good taste not to do it but the idea at this moment when the world was still reeling you know to put bin laden's cover the face on the cover of time magazine person to year just seemed untenable we got a lot of criticism for not to, you know we ended up with giuliani i mean that Giuliani at that moment rose to the occasion. It wasn't an insane choice, but I think plenty of people realized we had, kind of chickened out. Might be the right word that it just it wouldn't have gone well with our subscribers. It wouldn't have gone well with our sponsors. It just didn't quite feel right in our gut. But it was it was not the right decision by the criteria we had set. It it, it could have should have been Bin Laden.
0: Was there any thought to change it to either movement of the year or influence of the year and have it be terrorism more broadly than just putting Osama Bin Laden on the cover?
1: I, there might've been, I, you know, sometimes those general things sort of backfire. I mean, so it was, um, it was 2006. The, the person of the year was you It correctly. We correctly put our finger on the moment where all this, you know, DIY content was sort of happening and we were all creators. So, you know, it was, it was cool and it was clever. And, and the, the cover image was sort of a, a mirror thing. So, you know, you right. hold up the cover. Yeah. Is, you know, and that, people
0: hated that. They just, <laughs> just didn't work. And, you know, we, we had a little- It had to have cost you a huge amount of money to well, manufacture So, that. yeah.
1: So, we, we used that mirror stuff and we put in the editor's note that this was Kevlar. And the thing went so badly that DuPont, which makes Kevlar, had us write a note that made it clear, that is not Kevlar. Okay. <laughs> that is a different, we are not associated with this. That is a different product altogether. So I don't know. So sometimes those, those
0: things are clever, but they, they don't land very well with, with readers. So in 2008, you were editor of the book, President Obama, The Path to the White House, which contained behind-the-scenes photography by my mother's colleague, Callie Shell. And as you think back on that book and the subsequent eight years of the Obama presidency, what one word would you use to describe the Obama presidency? Disappointing. I led you there, but I was expecting something along those lines.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else you could say. It was thrilling when he was elected. We published that book because he was elected. It was, he won the Nobel Prize before he even took office because it was such a thrilling moment. He was, you know, such a, is such a remarkable person, but disappointing in terms of of what was accomplished. I mean, look, my views are very conventional on this, but that Obama seemed disinterested in the work that went into, that has to go into complicated policymaking and working with people you don't like to try to, I mean, so, so I remember not long after Obama was finished his second term, I ran into Leon Panetta, who had been his CIA chief, who had been his defense chief, who had been Bill Clinton's chief of staff. And, you know, he just said, yeah, you know, all he was simplifying things, but he said all Obama had to do was like, like some of these Republicans who didn't like him and it, like take him out to play golf or give him a ride on Air Force One or something like that, that that's just some basic politicking could have won Obama, you know, it could have strengthened the presidency. He could have been more effective. That may be a simplification, but I, I think he put his finger on something that Obama wasn't very interested in that and, and didn't like to do that. So now the deck was stacked against him. I mean, the Republicans from day one said, you know, our mission is to stop anything this guy tries to do. So it's not like it's easy, but, you know, the two terms were disappointing.
0: So when now Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin was elected, I said to a number of people he could pull an Obama. And by saying he could pull an Obama, my comment was saying a newly elected governor, Obama had just been elected to the Senate for the very first time. And so if you look at senators and governors as the, as the group of 150 of the most senior offices, I view them all in kind of the same bucket, if you will. And um, is there something that was unique, Adi, as it relates to Obama's ascendancy that will be almost impossible for someone else to replicate? Or is it fair to think that someone who, like a Yonkin, I'm not looking for a comment on Yonkin, I'm looking for what was unique either at that time or Obama as a candidate that allowed him to jump from his first national election to being elected president of the United States. Is that just too big a bar for anyone else to jump over. And obviously you can't say never, but I'm just saying do, from your knowledge of all that, was that truly unique or could someone else go and pull it off? Anything's possible.
1: I mean, you know, the rise of Trump as a political candidate was in some ways, you know, out of the I think when he started his campaign, you know, the Washington Post was covering the Trump candidacy in the style pages because they thought it was a joke. And before they realized that he was president of the United States. So, you know, anything's possible. I mean, Obama was a pretty special character, though. And, and I mean, I always think back to the 2004 speech that he gave at the Democratic National Convention, where he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a skinny kid with a funny name. And then he just blew us all away. I mean, right. so it's that helped. I mean, to have had kind of that under his belt to have suddenly, you know, arrived on the stage and people noticed and that that gave him a boost that was sort of behind the scenes and then sort of, added. To, but any, and generally, such an amazing speaker. I mean, I, those days, you know, primary after primary where Obama would come out and, and talk to the American people in ways we'd sort of never heard before, you know, it's sort of the the emotion and the passion and the poetry. And so, you know, there aren't a lot of guys like that, but yeah, anything's possible. No, I like that observation. And, and I don't think the Democrats know what they're going to do in the next general election. Nobody seems excited about Biden again. So something has to happen. And maybe somebody has to come out of the the woodwork and have a meteoric moment uh, and maybe it's, maybe it's income.
0: So let's switch to the Harvard Business Review. I I love everything we just talked about. I could keep talking about it for a long time, particularly given the, if you will, common history in Time Magazine with my mother. So I remember when I was doing research on business schools back in 1990 and uh, the Business Week book on the best business schools started its piece on Harvard Business School, something along the lines of Thump. That's the sound of the Harvard Business Review arriving in mailboxes of CEOs across the globe and the reason why the Harvard Business School brand is so strong. And so in that context, how do you view the HBR? Is it a marketing arm of the Harvard Business School? Is it a public record or consolidator of all the research that goes on at both Harvard University as well as Harvard Business School? Or is it an independent journal of business practices or all of the above?
1: So first of all, we are 100 years old this year. Congratulations. Uh, so we're, well, thank you. We're getting ready to celebrate. I haven't been there the whole time, but thank you. So w- when HBR was set up 100 years ago, it was ex- expressly done so then and it remains true today that it's not meant to be a vanity publication for Harvard Business School. It's not meant to be a publishing arm of HBS. So it, it's really your last point. Editorially, our goal is to acquire and publish the most important ideas in business. And, you know, as it turns out, rightly, a lot of them come from Harvard Business School because there's a a lot of really smart people there and they're doing a lot of interesting research, but that's maybe 20% of what we publish. So, you know, the rest is coming from people and that's essential. I mean, for us to be credible, for us to have value, there has to be a sense that we're publishing the best ideas, best research, wherever they
0: come from. And talk about that for a moment, Adi, in the sense that when you were at Time, you have a group of writers and you sit around and you whiteboard various things that they ought to go cover and you give them the authority to go and spend time researching something. And you've got also a timeline on it saying, let's get that written this week, or let's start doing on a feature piece that's going to take you three weeks or whatever the case is. How do you manage the content supply at HBR, given that you don't have a team of writers who go out and cover things for you. You're relying upon consultants at McKinsey and Bain, professors at Harvard Business School, as well as all the other business schools, and then industry uh, for content to put into the HBR.
1: So that's absolutely true. You know, my editorial team, they're editors, not writers. You know, very little of what we produce is is written by us. So, you know, it used to be that I, I we sort of produced what we produce from the inbox. Stuff would come in and we sort out you know sort through it and, and pick out the best stuff. We're more um, proactive now and we pay a lot more attention to you know it's it's hard well so we still go thump all right we have six print issues a year but most of what we do is digital we're reaching 15 16 million uniques a month digitally and that's across all kinds of platforms and you know, we have I think 13 million LinkedIn followers there's a whole lot of things that we do and, and ways to do it. But, you know, in many ways, the coin of the realm are still the sort of big, think, research-based pieces that, that are in the magazine. And, you know, we have a long lead time. It's hard to be newsy, but we want to be in the zeitgeist. We want to anticipate where people are. And HBR didn't used to do that. It was just a feeling that you got Fortune, you got Forbes, you got whatever that do timely. We'll do timeless. Everything will be relevant maybe forever for a generation. And we don't want to. That didn't doesn't feel right anymore. I mean, in part because we're also digital and have the ability to deliver things quickly, but also, you know, there's a fast paced world and things are changing quickly and we need to kind of deliver information for where people are right at this moment. And so right at this moment now could be, you know, how to thrive in a recession or how to avoid a recession or something like that, or the topics that people are really trying to solve now, how to, how to create and sustain a diverse workforce. You know, that has become an imperative, certainly in the U.S. in the last couple of years. So we have to be finding authors, finding research, finding ideas out there on these topics in a really timely way. So in that sense, it's, it's you know, my job and the job of theaters here has
0: changed a lot. So on that, the, I mean, I view HBR articles as being what I would call long tail articles. They're on all the issues that you just raised. But people's consumption of information has gotten, you know, increasingly short down to 140 characters or 160 characters whatever it is on a tweet i can't remember. How do you manage that consumer drive towards sort of shorter and cleaner to the where the HBR comes from of doing really heavy research and rolling up your sleeves and having if you will long format articles. My assumption is the actual Article length has gotten shorter. Is that a, is that a fair assumption, or is is it? If I went back a decade and looked at the yeah. length of the average article in the HBR, it would be the same today as it was then?
1: Well, it depends how you look at it. So, basically, in the old days, we only had long articles, so the average length of articles was, of course, long. You know, nowadays the long pieces are still pretty long, but in addition to that, we're doing you know we're doing digital short you know eight hundred word digital pieces. We're, you know, we're very active on Instagram. I mean, the answer to your question is, I think, give people the nugget. You know, we send out a management tip of the day. You know, our, our Instagram feed is is really lively. You know, give people a nugget that has value, but then provides the link to go deeper. And if you want to go deeper, then you, you have the full piece with the research, with the methodology, with all of the examples. So I think a lot of what we're doing is, is putting these ideas into different packages on different platforms that serve audiences in different ways.
0: And as you've broadened the various media, how important, you just talked about the number of LinkedIn followers, you're talking about video, you're talking about the actual thump that goes out. At the end of the day, as you look at revenues to the HBR, is it all back to the thump or have those other new investments in a broader media platform started to pay pay back dividends as it relates to advertising revenue or? general viewership
1: yeah so that's a good question so you know the publication business you're getting revenue from a lot of different areas you know in the old days when i was at time magazine it was, it was that was an advertising play and I, you know i think at our peak we had whatever you know 4 million maybe circulation it's mean, something crazy high and then you would sell ads based on that incredible rate base now you were churning 2 million of them every year so imagine the cost of replacing 2 million uh, subscribers every year. You know, it's not a pyramid scheme, but it's a tough business to keep going. And at a certain point, if the advertising goes away, you're left with, you have a problem because you don't have necessarily a devoted subscriber base. So HBR is different. I mean, we are all about subscription. And, you know, yes, we have advertising. It's very, very important to us. But the main revenue and the most important relationship we have is with subscribers. We have 340,000 paid subscribers now, you know, by far the highest level we've ever had so that the relationship with them is paramount so we have to keep delivering content look hbr is nobody's first read it's probably nobody's second third fourth read so people come to us to solve a problem or to deal with an issue or to get some sort of knowledge so that puts pressure on on everything we do to really have unique and often practical value like read this article. This will be an idea you can you can apply to improve your career or to you know improve how your how your company functions. So back to the, your revenue question, you know. At, so print ad revenue has declined. We do six issues a year instead of twelve, but you know digital revenue has 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 picked up. We do a ton of webinars that are sponsored and they're you know they're like this. There's are sort of intimate conversations with interesting people and. You know those are sponsors so we you know we found ways to generate new new sponsorship money as some of the traditional ones have gone away but there is no relationship more important than the one with our with our
0: readers and subscribers so on that at the top of your twitter feed today or yesterday when i looked at it was a new book by hbs professor keith Ferrazzi titled competing in the new world of work and um keith presented this past weekend at my reunion and it was a fascinating discussion but one of the things that he focuses a lot on is remote work versus in-person work. And as you well know, Adi, this is kind of the issue du jour of everybody from Jamie Dimon saying you're back in the office tomorrow or Elon Musk saying, if you're not you know, back in the office, you're not gonna have a job at Tesla anymore. It seems like everyone is debating this issue when it really is a personal issue. In the sense that every company is a little bit distinct, every company's relationship with their employees is a little bit distinct, and the needs of their employees to deliver their product or service is all distinct, yet we all seem to be looking for this sort of homogenous solution to an unsolvable question. Is that a fair view of it, or do you actually think that the research is going to tell us that there's something all of us should be doing and we haven't figured it out yet? I think
1: it, the research will probably tell us maybe what we, what we should be doing, but we definitely are not there yet. I mean, look, the, the, the most cited bit of research about work from home is a study that's almost a decade old. And that's, it was Nick Bloom and others at Stanford who looked at it. It's actually fascinating. They looked at a, a Chinese travel company, you know, I think it was like 16,000 employees, and you know, did this research where, where a number of them were like, randomly assigned to work from home and then others to work from the office over an extended period of time, and then let's see what happens. And what happened, not surprising now that we've lived through this, is that you know, productivity, however you measure it, went up, absolutely up. And it was partly because there were no commuting times, but not just that. Product- maybe people were working long hours, but whatever. Productivity went up. Job satisfaction went up. So some sense of, of your value, your work-life balance, something like that, they went up. What did not go up, and this is a problem, is promotions, so the people who were remote were promoted far less than their counterparts who were at headquarters. OK, so that's instructive, baby. I mean, that, or, or that's the type of maybe unexpected consequence that could come out of something that is producing good results in some ways, but you know, troubling results are at least something we have to deal with. Nobody's figured it out. There are plenty of employees who are leaving us and other people because they are finding jobs where they can be 100% remote. And I think there are people who didn't realize that was important to them who now feel like it is essential in what they do. So that that's the reality. Once that kicks in, then you can think about, all right, well, if I have five floors of a building, then, you know, maybe I have people come in one, two days a week, whatever, and I can get rid of a couple of those floors. So that is driving some of the the strategic calculation. But mostly what people aren't Answering is, what is an office for? And that's the most interesting question. And the things we publish, it's a tool. Think of it as a tool. It's one of the tools in your toolbox. It's not just a place that people go to work every day. We're past that. Be more thoughtful about it. It's a tool. So if it's a tool, what do you do? You have you bring everybody in and you have fun together or you have hackathons or you, you know, I don't know what. I think it was Nithin Noria, the former dean of HBS, who wrote a piece saying, think of the office as a clubhouse. And that's more we come together to connect and to celebrate and to create and sustain culture, but sort of implying that work we can do anywhere, work we do we can do from home. So you're right. Companies are all over the place. You must be at work. We don't care if you're ever at work. I mean, that's the range. We're in the middle. We have people coming in two days a week, but we don't feel strongly that that's the answer. We're really trying to figure out what the answer really is. I think a lot of people are as well.
0: That Stanford study on the Chinese travel company is fascinating. I was in California three weeks ago meeting with one of our clients, and I sat at lunch next to a young gentleman who graduated from USC two years ago. And so he's an analyst at this company. And I asked him, how much have you been coming to the office? He said, well, I've come into the office pretty much throughout. I mean, California shut down the office, so it was against the law for us to come. But the moment we come back to the office, I've been in the office. And he said he has two roommates, one who works at KPMG and the other one who works at E&Y. And he said, neither of them have even thought about going back to the office because all the big accounting firms are allowing people to work remotely. And I sat there and I turned to him and I said, five years from now, when you're interviewing for some new job, I can almost guarantee you that a potential employer will ask you whether you were in the office or remote, and it will potentially even become part of your resume. And that you, having been in the office, will stand a much better chance of getting that promotion and that new job than your two roommates who were at home in your apartment having a great time now doing all their work remotely being very very productive and it was funny because he you could see him sort of grin and sort of be like wow actually i've been doing that that actually might benefit me in five years i just thought it was what i needed to do to be successful at the company i'm working at today and so i hadn't heard of that study but i can only tell you that As an employer of 1500 people, I can guarantee you that at WND, a number of years out, we will be looking for people who are in and learning rather than being isolated and just being, if you will, very productive.
1: That's fascinating. Well, and it may be that, that the people who are working at home would, even if that's clearly the case, will still say, yeah, that was that was a fair trade off."
0: Very much so. I think also one of the issues here is in the professional services world and in the banking world, you cannot speak to somebody who's either in my industry or on Wall Street and not have them say, the way I learned was through the you know the course of hard knocks of sitting there with my boss asking me to do something at you know, 10 o'clock at night. And I stayed in the office until 2am to get it done, but that's where I really learned. And I actually had a colleague to help me with the model and to answer the questions that I didn't know. And so much of that casual learning is not happening in a remote environment. So I'm not trying to be monolithic in my view of you've got to get back into the office because there's plenty of great stuff that gets done from home. And you and I are doing a Zoom call here rather than me flying to Boston to do this face-to-face. And at the same time, I do think that that point as it relates to promotion and career path is a very distinct one that many people in a very tight labor market today aren't fully realizing the implications of that.
1: There's another interesting thing that's happening, and that's so a lot of companies, ours included, are trying to, and this has become a bigger issue again since the murder of George Floyd, but are trying to, you know, really create diverse, equitable, inclusive workplaces. And, you know, we're sitting in Boston and, you know, it's a fairly, uh, we're seeing a fairly homogeneous pipeline of people locally when we start to say, look we can hire people anywhere. They could be based in in New York or Chicago or wherever that helps us with tapping into, you know, pipelines of diversity is that word talent. And so we're hiring people, but then it's a question. So then we're more diverse on paper in terms of people's backgrounds and everything. Are we more diverse as a culture when we're distributed and remote? And that is something we're dealing with by trying to, so we need to bring this is the clubhouse idea. We need to bring people together physically on some cadence, even if it is to go to an island and, you know, do archery all day or something, because it's, it's a big challenge. If we weren't allowing people to work remotely a significant amount of the time, we would be losing people. I mean, that is just a reality now. If we were one of these companies that said, you have to be here, I think that would be a problem for us right now, at least with the, the type of talent we're chasing. And-
0: we'll see what a softer labor market those statistics once we get to it. And unfortunately, from the conversations that I had in Chicago over the last two days at that conference, it sounds like that's coming to a theater sooner than we would expect or want. So you published a piece by Yale Eisenstadt from Cornell entitled, How to Hold Social Media Accountable for Undermining Democracy. And I'm just curious, Adi, as it relates to how do you draw the line between business issues and political issues and the role that corporations need to be playing in our world today, as it relates to either speaking up on these issues or not, and how much you're having your authors or researchers write on it or not.
1: So it's a great issue, and you know I think every CEO is wrestling with this. To what extent do they want to they want to be activists? To what extent do they need to be activists? I mean, you know, ten years ago, if you asked CEOs about getting involved in social issues or even political issues, most would say, I, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, I'll speak out. Half the people will support me and half my customers will will be appalled. It was Michael Jordan who was, who was asked to be more of a kind of activist on social issues who said, you know, Republicans buy sneakers, too, or something like that. So, you know, that was kind of the prevailing view. Now it's not. And it's not just because CEOs are feeling more, okay, we need to solve society's problems, you know, feeling it passionately. But partly because, you know, the nature of this connected economy, the nature of Twitter, whatever, you know, silence is not an option. So if something happens, whether it's you know, George Floyd's murder or Ukraine or something like that, you can stay silent and just say, this isn't my battle, but motives will be ascribed to you by the digital masses. So you might as well take control of, of the message. And I mean, you know, you've heard this many times, but people want to work for companies that share their values customers to an extent they say it more than they probably actually do it but they want to buy products from companies that share their values. So it's just something different where in the old days CEOs were said yeah and I'll stay out of this. It's just a different equation now. You know, for us I'm not afraid of politics when Trump was elected there were people who wanted to write for us to say this guy's ridiculous. I was like no, I'm not going to publish that. If you want to attack a policy position and put up an alternative, that's fine. You can say, this is misguided policy, it's nuts, here's something, that's fine. But if you have an attitude like, well, obviously any educated person knows that this guy is, like, I'm not going to publish that. That's not what we do, and, and I wouldn't support that. Now, we also have realized that there are certain values that we kind of believe in as bedrock values. So, so the point of HBR is not to make rich people richer. That may be a consequence of... Some of what we publish, but that's not why we get out of bed every day to do what we do. You know, what we do is to try to make companies, institutions, you know, more effective, more successful over the long term. And it's not just woke politics, but it's research shows that companies that are more diverse, companies that have a sustainability imperative, companies that are, you know, fact based decision makers, companies that think for the long term are more successful over time. So those are sort of, to me, bedrock values. Now they've became more controversial than I would have thought in recent years, but that's okay. You know, I'm I'm comfortable if some people feel that that's we're taking our eye off off the prize, and the prize is I don't know, share price or something. Okay, fine. But this is what the research uh, is showing us are kind of essential, you know, bedrock values for long term success.
0: So two of your covers over the last twelve months have been one. Build a leadership team for transformation, and the other, how good is your company at change? I guess the question that I'd have as CEO of a publicly traded company: you think things ever slow down? I mean, there are academics who
1: fight against this idea that the pace of change has never been faster. That is always what we perceive, and that it's it's demonstrably not true. I just don't buy that. You know, it, or whatever. Maybe it's true, but and it's all mirage. But it sure feels like the pace of change is has never been quicker, and you know, if you look at, you know, what are the skills that people need to develop, let's say, in college or early career to be successful and to be hireable and all that? I mean, you know, sure, things like coding and, and data analytics are are important. But, you know, the, the, the number one sort of general skill is adaptability. So that there's an assumption that the business model and the strategy of a company is going to be not just tweaked, but sort of upended. Uh, within a few years, you want your people to be resilient and to be able to get excited about the possibility of change, to understand all this sort of, you know, digital design thinking stuff where, you know, we're going to iterate to the future and we're going to experiment and we're going to learn from it. And, you know, so this stuff is, is all about kind of rapid prototyping, rapid change that it's not just for startups, it's for, you know, established companies as well. So the adaptability and acknowledgement that change is going to come and go with it and, and help, help define what it is for your company is really a, a core skill right now. So I guess it's a long way of saying, no, I don't think the pace is going to change, but at least we're trying to prepare ourselves for it and to hire effectively for it.
0: I will give a plug for an article in this month's uh, Harvard Business Review called The C-Suite Skills That Matter Most by Sabun, Fuller, Hansen, and Neil, as a really good article that summarizes many of the issues that you just highlighted as it relates to what the needs are for C-suite executives going forward. Final question. This past weekend, when I was at my 25th reunion, HBS professor Joe Tango made this fantastic presentation on his final class every semester when he teaches students, where he goes off of what he's teaching them on entrepreneurial finance, and uh, basically tells them life lessons that he wishes he knew when he was a student at HBS and now as a middle-aged professional slash professor has the wisdom to look back and say, boy, if I'd only known this when I was 26 years old, what a difference it would have made. As you look back on your career, Adi, what are the two things you wish you'd known then that you know now?
1: Well, one of them was, I sort of thought money didn't matter. You know, I, I don't know how this happened. It may have been that I, you know, I went to a, a Quaker college or something. But you know, I, I just I wasn't interested in money. And sort of thought people who who were 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 just chasing you know false gods. So I, you know, I'm not the type of guy who would ever work on Wall Street. That none of that is is interesting to me. But I think I undersold myself and undervalued my skills for years because. Because I, I just, I thought money was something, you know, you don't talk about and don't worry about. So that is something, just a kind of undervaluing that what money means both symbolically and, and its, its utility as a thing. And the other thing, I guess, you know, as a young person, I was really sure about what I believed and maybe arrogant about it sometimes. And, you know, at this moment, I just feel like I'm so sick of people's certainty And, you know, there's stridency and I'm just sick of everybody's opinions. And I, I guess I feel, you know, maybe guilty for maybe being that type of person early. Hopefully I'm not so much now. I feel like we all need to kind of lay off. I like, I'm not so interested in your strident. You know, everything's a hot take. So everybody's competing to get attention with a hot take on something. And it, it really adds to the idea that we're talking past each other. So I kind of wish I'd understood that earlier as well.
0: It's I love that you say that as your closing point, because Arthur Brooks this past weekend in his presentation said that as he gets older, he's in this shedding process. And he said two years ago, he gave away 75 percent of his suits. And he says he's done really, really well with just 25 percent of his former wardrobe in making it so he looks okay And he only really needed the five suits he hung on to rather than the the, the 20 he had previously. But the other thing he said was this past year, he really got ambitious and gave up on 50 percent of his political views. And as I've repeated that, Adi, to a number of people, they've all said, well, it depends on which 50% he gave up on, on whether it actually was good or bad. But the point being is, here's someone who used to run the American Enterprise Institute, who had some pretty strong political views, and Arthur's point was, I feel like I'm more understanding. I feel like I'm more loving. I feel like I'm more engaged with the people I talk to after giving up on those 50% of very hard and and, and steadfast views from as a Republican and running AEI, Arthur had. And I just, I sat there and said, wow, if the former head of AEI can give up on 50% of his political views, maybe I ought to think about giving up on 50% of mine. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting that you say that.
1: Arthur Brooks for president.
0: Yeah, there you go. Exactly. You've been extremely generous with your time. I've loved our conversation. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. To everyone who joined us, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We'll see you again next week. And Adi, thanks again. Yeah, thanks, man. That was fun. Take care.